Welcome to the Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We're closing in on the end of the book of Isaiah. Just a few chapters to go. Today we're in chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. But his eyes speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Yahweh, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Yahweh, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. The text today begins almost with a question and answer kind of thing going on. Verse 1, the first half of verse 1, and then verse 2 are the questions that Isaiah is asking of God, and then you have the first part, the second part of the first verse, and then verse 
3 through 6 that work as God's answer to these things. So a little detail on, on verse 1. Edom is the land inhabited by the brother of, of Jacob. So Jacob and Esau, the twins. Esau's descendants become the nation of Edom. And Basra, that, that next place mentioned, is a city in northern Edom. So Edom is actually to the south of, of Judah, where God's people were. And Basra is not that far then away from their territory. Isaiah, as a prophet, as a watchman, is looking and he is seeing this marching, a splendid one, marching, a, a military march here is what you should have in mind, in his own greatness, in his own strength. It would be easy to wrongly uh, read this as being uh, the enemy boasting. But that's not what this is. This is actually God himself who is marching, returning home, which is a neat picture for this whole whole era as we think of this time in history as God is actually working to redeem and save his people from captivity. Here we have that picture given to us. God is depicted in this chapter as the conqueror who has rode into, uh, Edom is a representative of all the enemies of God here. He has rode into the camp of his enemy, into the land of his enemy. He has defeated them, utterly defeated them, and now he's returning home. So as we think of the, the redemption of Judah and they get to return home, within the next couple of decades, that's the kind of picture that we want to have in mind here. God is victorious. He responds. He answers. He is mighty to save. So the, the next thing is kind of the same question and answer again. In verse 2, why is your apparel red? This isn't. This ends up being a play on words as that, that word Edom or, or Esau comes from the idea of being red. You might remember that from when Esau was born, um, his his reddish color and his hairiness are what ends up giving him his name that he has for the rest of his life. But the redness here is like those who have been treading in the wine press. So you think of, I don't know, the picture I have in mind is almost like one of those, those big tubs. You think of a, well, even the old metal round tubs that you might have in your yard. Um, I had one of those growing up. But you get a bucket, a few feet in diameter. You fill it up with, with grapes, and then you step in there, and you just start smushing them. And um, I guess in this imagery, you didn't take, you didn't wear shorts. You were wearing long clothing, and that's getting covered in the, the juices of the grapes. This is being very vividly used to discuss God's enemies here, that he has crushed them like one crushes grapes. So his, his garments are red, soaked in the blood of his enemies. This is God's wrath. Now, this is something that we also then, this wrath of God that we bring into the picture when we talk about Good Friday, uh, that God poured out his wrath that we deserved 
because of our sin and our rebellion against him, he poured that out on his own son, Jesus, on the cross. So that can be a part of your family's conversation whenever God's wrath comes comes up. Because God's wrath truly is a terrifying thing. But in Christ, we no longer have to live in the fear of God's wrath. Because Christ has already taken it. His wrath is already spent. This is good news. Indeed, good news for us. My own arm brought salvation down in verse 5. We've seen some of this language before. The day of vengeance, the year of redemption. God's timing has come, come about. So God is going to do what he has to do to save his people. Because they have abandoned him, he's fighting alone. But he does it. He can take that again to Cyrus and the, the restoration that's coming soon. But he can also, again, God fighting alone for the sake of his people. And doesn't get any better than the cross for that, does it? Jesus fighting alone, abandoned, forsaken, on our account, to save us. Verse 7 switches speakers. It goes back to Isaiah, who's now speaking, and as it will be the rest of the text, actually, the rest of the chapter. So recounting, remembering, this is something we are to do. We are to remember what the Lord has done for us. We are to remember his steadfast love or his his faithfulness or his um, how he keeps his promises. However you want to phrase this little, little phrase here, steadfast love could also be translated covenant faithfulness. God keeps his word to us. Now, you could ask here, as, as Isaiah continues, what is it that God has done for them? And very specifically in mind is the Exodus account. As you look down below, you'll see that in, in a few different places, that God became their Savior, called them his people from the days of old. As you look down there in verse 9, carried them all the days of old. And the angel of his presence is mentioned as saving them as well. That could be a reference back to, well, a couple of things. The angel of Yahweh, very specifically the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, is, is often considered to be a reference to Jesus himself. The other thing you might have here, and it, I don't want to put a lot into this because I'm not sure of it myself, is in the Exodus account, the 10th plague, most of the time Christians believe that a an angel is the one who did the destroying, the killing of the firstborn. The biblical text doesn't actually read that way. So if, if it were an angel, then it could be connecting here. But I'm not sure it does in that sense. The biblical text, again, doesn't say that. It says Yahweh did it. So I'm, I'm not sure I want to go that far with that connection. But it is the Exodus account that we are to have in mind, and it's going to come up in verses 10 and 11 as well. Uh, as we think of all the times in the wilderness wandering, the Israelites rejected God, um, and he allowed them, he gave them over to their sins sometimes, other times he punished them for it. You have the fiery serpents, for example, uh, that they ended up having to be saved from as well. God stopped fighting against them, verse 11. It's a reference to, to the covenant. He remembers the promises that he has made to them, and so he, he spares them. Verse 11 through 13 here, Isaiah is, is asking essentially where God is now. 
where is he who brought up brought them up out of the sea? That's a, the Red Sea reference for the Exodus again. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? That's a reference to the tabernacle, that he was constantly present with his people. And that just keeps going on and on. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God has done this. God saved his people and made his name great before the Egyptians and the surrounding nations that they too might come to faith. And again, in that account, we learn that some of them do. And that's something we can be thankful for. Verse 15, uh, through the end of the text, Isaiah, again here, calling out to God, calling for God to act on behalf of his people. So uh, verse 15, specifically, Isaiah mentions the idea that he doesn't know God's desire. Isaiah is a prophet. God speaks to his prophet. God uses his prophet to speak to his own people. And here Isaiah is feeling like it's just been a vacuum recently, that there's been nothing, just emptiness, that he hasn't heard from the Lord. He doesn't know what God is thinking or, or, or wanting to do. And so he's calling again for God to act. Verse 16, Isaiah notes that really they're so far removed from everything of that covenant. So it was made with Abraham. They are so far removed, generationally speaking, that Abraham would not know any of them. They are so far removed from Israel, that nation that was God's people. That nation is no more. Assyria has already destroyed it. But nonetheless... Isaiah is calling upon his God. The remainder, the remnant of Judah is calling upon their God. And we do this too. Uh, in our families and in our churches, our communities as Christians today, we call on the name of the Lord, even though Abraham and Israel do not know us. Verse 17, uh, a little bit of a glimpse of Romans 1 kind of material here. At times, God gives us over to the depravity of our own hearts, to our own sinfulness. We are sinners. We love our sin. And there are times where God simply lets us have what we want. We've earned it. We've deserved that. And we can pray that if that happens, that the Lord would bring us to repent again. Return for the sake of your servants. If God returns to his people, if he cares for them, they will live. That's the goal of Isaiah's prayer here, um, speaking to the Lord so we can call it a prayer. Verse 18, um, it's a military reference. We might almost see it as a sports reference too. So your people held possession for a little while, but it didn't last. It's like the goal line stand in football. You held on first, second, and third down. You thought you were doing so well. And then just like that, it was it was done. It was over. You lost. They made it in. Um, and that's the picture here. For a while, Israel, under their own might, under their own strength, was able to care for the promised land and do what God had given them to do. But in their pride and in their sin over time, um, God ended up being fighting against them, and they lost. Verse 19 acknowledges that we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. This is a reference to 1 Samuel 8, where the Israelites demanded a ruler for themselves, from among themselves, so that they could be just like all their neighbors around them. And God, again, just like we were talking about with Romans 1 and verse 17, God gives into that. He allows them to have the desire of their wicked heart. 
they wanted to be just like all their neighbors. Guess what? Now they are. They don't know God. That's a dangerous point, but it is the point point that they had come to, and it is why they were in exile. But God will not leave them there. Again, God is mighty to save, and that has been one of the consistent themes throughout Isaiah, one that we'll see before the last few chapters conclude.